My global IQ is 109. 100. 145. 122. 109. 132. 181. 137. 103. 126. It's a special pleasure to welcome you to my podcast and to Dallas. Jim, thank you very much. It's great to be here. I thought it was very valuable in the introduction, and you also repeated it a bit more and expanded in the conclusion of your book, how you detailed some of the terms that we so often hear and probably don't really understand as well as we should, propaganda, disinformation, and misinformation. Yes, so disinformation is deliberately false information meant to deceive. Misinformation, for the most part, is a mistake. It's, it can be deliberate, but it's often a mistake. I was an editor, as you mentioned, of Time Magazine for seven years. I was a journalist for many, many years. I, I made mistakes. You could call that misinformation. The great term is really propaganda. And propaganda comes from the Latin word propagare. It has to do with propagation of the faith of the Catholic Church in the 16th century. And I say that propaganda can be good or bad. The U.S. has used propaganda during World War I, World War II. I would say that was good propaganda. It was propaganda in favor of freedom and democracy and, and, and countries deciding their own fate. There's also negative propaganda, propaganda that the Nazis used, that the Russians used. So those are the three basic terms, and that's how I define them. So why is it especially difficult for us as Americans to fight disinformation? Well, as you saw in the book, Jim, I mean, I came to the conclusion that government wasn't really the answer. We shouldn't fight disinformation with disinformation. We shouldn't become what we oppose. And, and government isn't a place that people are really much good at creating content. I mean, I was creating content for most of my life, and, and people in government, that's not what they do. They do lots of wonderful things, but they're not you know, great at writing tweets or, 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 or doing that kind of thing. I do think there needs to be legislation that will change the... The, the way social media works, and I won't get too boring with this, but, but part of it, the legislation that enabled all of these great platform companies to rise was legislation called, from the Communications Decency Act in 1996, which did not consider them publishers. So they're not liable for the content they published. They weren't even considered publishers, but they're the biggest publishers in the whole world. They need to have more liability for the content that they publish, and that's the content that we give them, you and me, everybody else. So that gets you into really the subject of social media. And you're seeing right now Mark Zuckerberg is really on the hot seat with uh, Congress and whether or not there should be more regulation. How do you view that? I mean, aren't they really publishers now? I think they are publishers. I think the regulation reforming Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, where I think Mark has a point, and I'm sympathetic, he makes the point that political speech is more protected than regular speech and that he doesn't feel that it's Facebook's job to take down political ads or remarks by newsmakers, even the President of the United States, if it contains false content. In a democracy, we're supposed to make that decision. I think that's a legitimate point of view. The other thing that people I don't think understand is that the platforms have their own constitutions. They're called terms of service agreements. And in fact, Facebook does take off hate speech. It does take off speech that leads to or promotes violence. It does take off things like you know pornography. So so they also they do police themselves. I think they need to be more even more vigilant around political speech, though. You know, one of the phrases that you wrote that I really liked that there are not two sides to a lie. 
I used to say that to the foreign services foreign service officers who worked for me because I, I felt that our adversaries, particularly the Russians, use not only the First Amendment against us, they use our own journalism against us. We have this bias toward fairness. And the way a lot of journalists think about it is it's showing both sides of an argument. But when Vladimir Putin said there were no Russian soldiers in Crimea in 2014 when he invaded, that was just a lie. Yet every journalist had to report it. So. I think in this day and age, particularly when the president himself is the disinformationist in chief, there's no point in saying, here's one argument, here's the other, if one argument is verifiably and demonstrably false. But who are the guardians of the facts now? Because that's not pornography, it's not violence, and yet you really are just getting so many things where, where people are going to Facebook or Twitter for their information. And in the past, you had fact checkers and, and several levels of editorial control or oversight. You still do in traditional media organizations. Time Magazine still checks things and, and is copy edited. But as I say in the book, we don't so much have a fake news problem as a media literacy problem. The problem is the audience. You know, fake news is not just a supply problem, it's a demand problem. People seek it out. And I think people are also not that good at deciphering the difference between fact and fiction. One of the things I propose in the book is that the social media companies should spend billions of dollars helping schools teach media literacy. I mean, it's going to take a long time for people to really help figure this out. Plus, they have to do things like let you know when that's a bot that's tweeting at you rather than a human being. We should know the difference. Or Senator Romney. <laughs> <laughs> what do we think about that? You know, one of the problems and also the virtues of social media is that it allows anonymity. I mean, again, throughout our history and through world history, anonymity has allowed people to publish and write things that they couldn't say under their own name. But part of the problem is it also creates more disinformation, more hate speech because people can camouflage their identity. They're willing to say something if you don't know that I'm saying it. So, you know, that's a basic design flaw, as it were, of the Internet. Your work at the State Department, that position is very broad. We at the World Affairs Council work with the International Visitor Leader Program, so yes. we know that side and the Fulbright program. and so forth. But you really focused on Russia and ISIS. What are some of the similarities of the two, and what were the challenges for each? Well, they were both adept at propaganda and disinformation. One of the basic differences and, and this is why the Russian stuff is still going on, is that the Russians camouflaged their identity. We estimated at, the, at ISIS's height in 2015, there were probably 10 or 15,000 digital jihadis, we call them, who were you know, hyper-industrious uh, people on Twitter, particularly, that were cranking out tweets and content around the idea of the caliphate and in support of ISIS. By the way, one of the things most Americans don't realize the lion's share of that, 80% of it, was in Arabic. It wasn't directed to, toward us. They did more in Russian and, and French than they did in English. But they're surprisingly talented. They are surprisingly talented. And by the way, to be fair too, this idea of the caliphate is a beautiful idea to Muslims. I mean, in the traditional idea that Muhammad preached this idea of a transnational Muslim state, they perverted it with their violent vision of the caliphate. But Again, the lion's share of their tweets were not things that you could take down. I remember you know, looking at their tweets every day, and I remember seeing one of, uh, of a basket of apples, and in Arabic it said, the caliphate is bountiful. Well, can't take that down. That's not only protected by the First Amendment, it's not any of those things. It's not hate speech, it's not speech that leads to violence. So 
That was what ISIS did. What the Russians did is they camouflaged their identity. They pretended to be Americans. They created Tennessee GOP, which people thought was Republican women from Tennessee. They created Blacktivist, this phony site that was meant to be you know, African-American activists. Tell us about Lisa. That's a great story. I tell the story of Lisa. I was visiting Germany, and it was right around the time that there was a story that started in Russian newspapers that Syrian refugees had raped a 16-year-old Russian girl who was then living in Germany. Well, part of it was correct. I mean, she had left school and stayed with a friend of hers, but she'd never been attacked. And this story started in kind of Russian social media, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg. It was instantly echoed by the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. It was a real insight into how their media ecosystem works, which is that and this is something that the Mueller report never really got into. Even these trolls who were tweeting from the Internet Research Agency, that was almost instantly echoed by mainstream Russian media like Russia Today and Sputnik and TASS, and then also echoed by the Russian foreign minister. I mean, it was really crazy and very hard to compete with. And part of this, again, that story also shows Vladimir Putin's idea of wanting to weaponize immigration. You know, his indiscriminate bombing of Syria led to an increasing flow of Syrian refugees, million of whom ended up in Germany. And then they started all these stories that Syrian refugees were causing violence and upsetting German society. And people turned against immigration. And that ultimately led to our presidential election, where immigration became this outsized issue that was disproportionate to the actual problem. So Russia's not just doing this towards the United States. It's really across the world. I originally, as I say in the book, I saw it around the annexation of Crimea in 2004 in the Russian periphery, in the Baltics, especially in Germany. They were creating disinformation around Brexit. They were creating disinformation around the right-wing parties in France. I tell the little story about how they got a, a referendum defeated in the Netherlands, was a, which was about helping Ukraine. I mean, they're really insidious about this. And again, people weren't really aware of it. So what do we do? Well... I think we should have done more at the time of the election. I think that the Russians sort of paid a higher penalty. Look, we, we still have sanctions, but those sanctions were really around the annexation of Crimea. One of the good things is that we're talking about it. You and I are talking about it. People are talking about it. People are writing books about it. So there's a greater awareness. So people might say, well, actually, this funny-sounding Twitter handle, you know, maybe really isn't a voter in Waco, Texas. It's, you know, somebody in Russia. Again, that's not easy to decipher. I think changing the legislation to make the platform companies more liable for content like this and, and forcing them to take it off. I think things like, as I say, revealing what's a bot and what's a human being. I think taking off demonstrably false content, even if it's political content, I think we have to do that. And I think, again, people need to become more media literate. Now, you said in your book that you really had a lot of respect for the people that were working at the State Department, but you were also stymied by the bureaucracy. What were some of the toughest challenges you faced? One of the things we've seen just in the last few weeks is the incredible uprightness and patriotism, decency, and sacrifice on the part of foreign service officers who have testified, even though the State Department said, you know, you shouldn't be testifying to the House Committee. I mean, these are people who, they take an oath to protect the Constitution. The reason they were testifying is they were protecting the Constitution. They work for the American people. They don't work for any one administration or, or other. At the same time, you know, the State Department is an old place. Uh, it's been around a long time. You know, there are 70,000 employees of the State Department. It's arcane. They have a clearance process where almost any public utterance 
that you do has to be cleared by 20 or 25 different bureaus. I mean, again, I used to create content. I mean, that's even if when it, even when it does get cleared, it, it makes it so flattened and, and uninteresting. So I think peeling away some of the layers of bureaucracy is a good idea. And I think also bringing the State Department into the age of social media, which I tried to do, I think that's important. How were your relations with the White House? Pretty good, actually. I mean, I talk about uh, Ben Rhodes in there, who was the Deputy uh, National Security Advisor for the President. They were super helpful to us, and I think they saw a kindred spirit because we saw these things going on, and, and we were willing to be active about it. But again, as you're hinting at, there's always tension between the White House and the State Department or the, or the State Department and the NSC. And, you know, presidents like to control foreign policy and secretary of states like to control foreign policy. So there's always a bit of a struggle. I'd like you to tell us more about a character in your book, Alexandra Dugan. Well, <laughs> Alexander Dugan is a strange sort of Russian philosopher. Sort of the wizard behind a lot of this. Yes, and he looks like Rasputin. He has a long beard. I, wa I watched a bunch of YouTube videos of his. And people say he has Putin's ear. And the, and the evidence of that is that Putin often reflects his comments. And, and it's this very strange idea, and it'll sound strange to American ears, is that Russia should become this white Christian superstate. It's the last kind of white Christian superpower. And, you know, that's why it was so creepy, this kind of connection between Russia and Donald Trump and this evocation of white Christian supremacy. And Dugan says this all the time. Dugan was a big supporter of Trump. He was on the airwaves supporting Trump and supporting Trump's vision. And there's just so many examples that I talk about in the book of where Trump and the Russians echoed each other. It sort of rhymed. I mean, they weren't repeating each other, but there was, <laughs> there was something behind it. One of the things I enjoyed in the book, too, is when you were often put on the spot, you'd be walking down the hall and Secretary Kerry would grab you and say, here, we got a meeting in the Oval, and you, off you'd go. At one point, President Obama asked you a pretty difficult question. And he said, has Western media contributed to ISIS success in the information war? Tell our listeners how you replied. I think he would have asked the same question about whether Western media in general, American media in particular, helped the Russian narrative. And the answer I said was yes. I mean, part of the reason that ISIS was successful as a terrorist organization is that terrorism is asymmetric warfare. And terrorist propaganda is meant to scare people. So they created this grisly, grisly beheadings and they filmed movies about it and it scared us. I mean, it's 6,000 miles away. And as President Obama said, a comment that people thought was scandalous where he said ISIS is not an existential threat to America. I mean, they're certainly not. But their propaganda made them seem like they were. And at the height of their sort of power, you know, 60% of Americans were afraid of ISIS terrorism coming to America. Now, of course, it did come in small pieces, but it's not a threat to us as a, as a nation. Last question, how did the Trump campaign, as well as now the administration, change globally the perception of the United States? I think it's, you know, bordering on a tragedy in terms of how he has altered the perception of the United States. And I think I tell the story in the book of one time talking to a African foreign minister who said to me, you know, you come and talk to me about human rights and transparency and the Chinese come and build me a superhighway. Who am I going to listen to? Well, ha ha ha. And of course, you know, that makes sense. But we do talk about transparency and human rights. We do go around doing this. People trust our word. America is really the only country that actually operates on this kind of moral and ethical plane. Not always. We've, we've made plenty of mistakes. But 
Trump has kind of pulled the rug out from under that. He's utterly transactional. And more than transactional, he's trying to get foreign countries to do his bidding for domestic purposes. And I think it's just hurt the American brand. I mean, we're the country that did the Marshall Plan to raise billions and billions of dollars to help our enemies get back on their feet and not take any of their territory. And Donald Trump is saying, let's take the oil, let's take the territory. I mean, that, that's un-American. And I think it hurts our image around the world. Well, Rick, I want to thank you so much for being our guest. The book, Information Wars, How We Lost the Global Battle Against Information and What We Can Do About It. It couldn't be more timely. Thanks so much for being with us. And thank you for listening to Global IQ with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Please subscribe and rate Global IQ on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. Special thanks to my producers, Kara Sheckman and Kayla Smith. And as always, with that, I ask, what's your Global IQ?